Here we go on the Hammer Factor, going into our celebrity guest. We have a uh, maybe more of a legend than you, John Weld, on the line today. Oh, I would, I would say. Yeah, um, we have the uh, the one and the only Corn Addison, uh, who is gonna gonna join us today. So uh, let's see if we can first. Get... The first time I met Corin, we were building kayaks at Valley Mill. Lewis, did you ever like apprentice there? Yeah. Uh, did I, rel- I relentlessly made fun of you for like a, like a, a summer or something like that? Did, was that how it, it went was down? It's not even. I mean, the first time you and I met was I was in middle school and they had this thing where you could leave class and go like apprentice somewhere for like a week. <laughs> and so I was, you know, 13, I guess. Yeah, and every like, morning, I don't know if you were. I don't know if my mom was like dropping me off on the side of the river road or something. Yeah. Weld went pick you know pick me up and we drive out to Valley Mill in the morning listening to Howard Stern and like Weld would kind yeah. of just like grill me during the commercial breaks and it was like like shut up it's time to listen to Howard Stern. <laughs> <laughs> we were out there building boats and uh, you know I used to build race boats a place called Valley Mill boats like composite race slalom kayaks some downriver boats. But it's a little boat shack out in the woods. It's me and Andy Bridge who went out to work at Warner Paddles. But we would be out there listening to like the hardest of hard heavy metal. It would be like Slayer, like a Slayer rock block going on, you know, <laughs> endlessly. That was like really, very formative music years. Yeah, and then we would like switch there. over to like Came Crimson, you know, it would be like a Came <laughs> Crimson. Like, hey, Corey, I'm, I'm talking about when, we, when I first met you. This, uh, this is John Weld. Okay, and so we're on this phone. I don't know why my computer, like I can see you guys, but it won't answer the call. Well, uh, can you hear us? I can hear you on my phone. Huh. Interesting. But I can't, like, That's the weird. computer for some reason won't, I don't know why it won't answer the call. Well, we made it happen. Thanks for coming on the Hammer Factor, Corin. Oh, the hammer factor. Oh, my goodness. Am I going to get my ass handed to me? <laughs> no, it's going to be very, it's going to be a lot of softball questions for sure. Well, like, what's your favorite river? <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> so, anyway, we were working, we were building boats. It's probably like 1991. Corin, I'll let you know if I need anything from you. We were building boats, <laughs> and uh, it was Andy Bridge and I, and Corin drives up, and he has like, this a, a flat bottom race boat and he's like i'm gonna let you guys mold this boat and andy started laughing and since andy's laughing i started laughing too i don't know what the hell is going on but <laughs> i you know i was just gonna do whatever andy was doing but it was a planing hull race kayak right and corn's like i'm gonna let you mold this thing for this amount of money and andy started laughing even harder and Andy's like that's the stupidest thing i've ever seen right <laughs> what do you mean this is this is the future of the sport right and he's like it's not the future of the sport i'm like it's not the future of the sport. <laughs> what Andy said. Uh, but it turns out it was the future of the sport. Who would have guessed? Do you remember that at all, Corin? Uh, I don't remember saying that, but I do remember I do remember uh, showing up with the painting hold slalom boat. Um, I forget yeah. what I called it, but um, I remember that boat. That was the intense, right? Uh, no, no, no. The intense was what I raced at the Olympics. This is pre well, this is this is after I had started doing planing holes, but I hadn't brought it in the market. So the intense, I'd already been messing around for three or four years with planing hole boats, but I hadn't really got them to work properly. And they were chunky, clunky feeling doors. Kind of, they were kind of like a pre on alien, you know, unpleasant to paddle. <laughs> um, 
And uh, so the Intense was still a round-bottomed boat, standard sort of slalom. It had more rocker and it had more... Um, it had more rock and so I'm oh, Tyler, hang on. UPS is here. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> tell, oh, it's tell, FedEx. One second. One second, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> Bonjour. We're going to do this in French. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there you go. Thank you, sir. Oh, look. Well, you should finish your story about, uh, about valuable my, boats. That's for another episode. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, so I, the intense was was a little bit like the boats are today, except it was four meters, but it had really cutaway stern and it had more bow volume, more bow rocker than slalom boats did at the time. But it was nothing breakthrough. The boat you're talking about, I was probably a couple of years later. I forget what I called it. If it was white, if I remember correctly, but. Uh, um, and I'd been working on it with Jason Beeks. Huh. Yeah, I guess I can't remember that. Yeah, but Jason I mean, was, yeah, he was living in Asheville or something at the time, and we would go down to the Savage Factory and work on the boats and then make a one-off of the thing and go out and paddle it. And, and I forget who Jason's coach was at the time. At the time, I still had aspirations of competing in 96. Um, and and uh, so we were working on this thing, and, and yeah. But there was nothing. I mean, it was nothing like that. I mean, at least you know, as far as we. I mean, that, there was every boat out there. looked, it was it was a displacement hull. Right. I'd never seen a whitewater boat with a planing hull at that point. You know, I mean, or, no, I had, the theory. I had the theory prototypes already before then, and that's that's obviously where we got the idea from. Is we were taking the fury out onto waves and spinning like a top, and you know, and, and I was thinking, man, you could really. Some of the direct moves, I mean, now they're doing all those moves direct because the boats are so small, you can just whip it around on nothing. But, you know, at four meters long, and we still had more volume in slalom boats back then. And, and um, you know, I was thinking some of these moves that you do, even if, even if it's one move per course, that you can go direct because you can get on a wave and just flat spin it so that by the time you get to where you've got to do the move, you're already facing downstream. Um so that you're, was you're where I was coming from. <laughs> your inspiration for this was it was a surfboard or something like that, right? Or what was your what was Boogie your board. inspiration? Boogie board. Boogie boards. Um, I was uh, uh, I was down at the beach. Uh, I was out there. Um, I forget what boat it was. I think it was in a Donso or something like that. This is like mid '80s, and um, these guys were on boogie boards catching waves, and they were doing all these flat spins on the wave. You know, because surfers don't do that because they got fins. Well, they didn't back then. They do now, but they they didn't do spins like that back then. But the boogie boarders were spinning like a top down the wave, and I was like, "Man, wouldn't it be awesome to be able to do that in a boat?" And were you? Was this when you were working for Perception? You'd work no, for Masters. No, this is long before that. This is Perception. I started working there in '87, so this was probably '86. So um, we should we should back up a bit because you have a long and storied career in this sport. So briefly, where you started, obviously South Africa, uh, paddling. Like how how did you get the sport, and what? What brought you here to the U.S.? Oh, goodness. How I got into the sport is almost embarrassing. Um, my, my father saw Deliverance, and he thought it would be a great, great <laughs> idea to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That's actually not that uncommon. <laughs> Apparently so. But he, he wanted to go canoeing, and we were in South Africa, and he couldn't find a canoe. Couldn't find one. And the, the local university had this mold down in, like, the sh in a shed 
for some slalom boat from like 1972 Olympics or something like that. And uh, he decided, well, he couldn't find a canoe, so he was going to build a, a kayak. So he borrowed this mold and he brought it home. And I think he took a saw to it and he started cutting it up. And I was probably five or something at the time. Um, so, you know, my introduction to paddling was also my introduction to design. There was no right. concept of buying a boat right, or getting something that existed. If you wanted to go kayaking, first you had to design a boat and then you had to build a boat and you had to invent the spray skirt, which that only came several years later. Um, and uh, you had to, you know, uh, uh, design a life jacket. That also became several and helmets. But um, so... Uh, it's probably about 75, 76 is when I was introduced to paddling by my father and I was introduced to designing at the exact same moment. The, the, the two literally are inseparable for me. Um, you can't do one without the other. I never have. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, when I, I started paddling, you know, in the late 70s, but, you know, there'd be like a, a Letman Mark V mold, you know, floating around and it lands somewhere close to you and everyone would go over there and build a boat and Wallbridge was making skirts and life jackets back then. So you get a Wallbridge kit, but there's right. definitely an idea that it was a homegrown do it yourself sport. It wasn't something that involved the retail market at all, you know? Yeah. Well, not in the States anyway, in Europe, it was pretty established. You had, right. you had, uh, you had Bavaria Bort, you had Lepman, Prion. Um, and then in, in, uh, England you had, uh, um, they became piranha, but before then they were called. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. In Europe, it was it was <clears throat> it was pretty established already. There were manufacturers, but in the U.S., perception I think started in about '76, um, making composite boats, or maybe '74. And of course, you had the hollow form that was around, and you had the that was in plastic, and you had the the the, the river chaser from Quebec, also in plastic. Oh yeah. In 72. Um, yeah. You had to be a brave man to paddle those things, you know. It was so dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. So what brought you to the U.S.? How did you end up here? Um, well, I moved from South Africa to Europe in 1986. No, 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 no. 1984. So I... Uh, this is right before I got my call-up papers. In South Africa, military service was mandatory. It was during the apartheid years. It was civil war going on. And the last thing I wanted to do was end up in the white man's army shooting black people because they were black. So if, as long as you left before you got your call-up papers, you were not AWOL. If you left <laughs> after you got your call-up papers, they were, they're going to come after you. So I got out of there when I was about 15, and I went to Europe. My mother moved to Europe so that because she had three sons. So all three of us were in the same position. Um, and we left with her so that we could avoid military service in South Africa. And then in 87, um, I designed a boat um, at home, built a thing at home. And I decided that I was going to be the next designer for Perception Kayaks. And I sent Bill Masters at Perception a letter with some photos of the boat and told him that I wanted to come see him and sell him my design. And he said, well, get on a plane, come over here. So I came across. And uh, he was getting his ass handed to him by the Va uh, Vladimir Vaha's, uh, he had the, 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 the jetties, and he was right. working at the Air Aquatic, the AQ. 
Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And, um, my kind of short and flat and rounded. It became the Corsica, my boat. Right. And he said, well, look, um, we need some new blood in here. Do you want a job? And I, I was completely, I mean, to me, perception was like God. <laughs> it, was, it was this thing on the other side of the ocean that did these amazing things. And I would get the perception catalog in South Africa, which you couldn't get anything from the U.S. in South Africa. But I would have a friend who would go to the States and I would make sure anybody going to the States would pick up anything perception for me and a sticker or a catalog or a cap or anything and they'd bring it back. And so it's all of a sudden it's it's these guys, the, the owner and the starter of perception says, hey, do you want a job? I'm like, what, 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 what? what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he paid me absolutely shit. He was paying me $12,000 a year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <It was> <laughs> um but it got me it got me going you know he got me a work permit for the states uh and so i moved to easily and um we did the first boat we did was the corsica you know out the gate and and uh it was a huge success and so right uh, after that he, he kept me on you know we did the corsica s and i mean a whole bunch of other boats as well of course so what other like what boats were you what boats did you work on while you were there um, well, both that I was almost exclusively did was the Corsica, the Corsica S, the Corsica Matrix, um, the Slasher, that was the C1 slalom boat, the right. uh, Revolution, right, right. the Revolution, which was that catamaran. That catamaran thing, yeah. Yeah. yeah I remember this. Um, and then I worked with Richard Fox on taking his, um, yeah. his reflex. reflex and putting it in yeah. plastic. So it was basically his design. Yeah. But Dansel, who was uh, uh, the main designer at Perception, he was mostly doing the Aquaterra um, sea kayaking stuff by then. Um, right. So I was doing the whitewater stuff, and Alan was doing the sea kayaking and recreational stuff. Right. Um, so those are the boats that went to market. And then I worked on a whole bunch of other things. I did a planing hold boat that was kind of like the Triple X. We called it the Blackout. And uh, it was a little bit like Triple X. It was about 10 feet long. It was based and was inspired by slalom, uh, not slalom, but by uh, um, squirt boats. But the idea was that you couldn't do a rotor molded squirt boat. Well, I didn't think you could. I mean, obviously, the guys, the Enigma eventually did it. But um, so the idea was that it was going to be something that you could flat water cartwheel and you could blast pour overs and you could do a lot of the squirt boat stuff, but you probably weren't going to be doing mystery moves in it. Like, where did the Sabre factor into all that? I mean, that was right around the time of the Sabre. No, the Sabre was a little bit before. The Sabre came out in about um, uh, 85, because I had a Sabre in South Africa. Um, okay. So that was my boat choice. I went to reception with the Sabre. That's the boat that I was paddling. So, but the Sabre was 12 feet. This thing here was or 12 and a half feet. This boat was 10 feet. And it was literally like a triple X. It had a planing hull, a little narrow in the triple X, a little bit, um, little bit uh, smaller uh, uh, ends possibly than the triple X. Um, and I did a couple of rodeos in this boat, um, in that in the blackout at the Akoi Rodeo in what '89 or something. I competed in the blackout in the surface boat class, and I was linking ends and stuff in the hell hole in this thing, but. Nobody know what to do with it, you know. I mean, how do you score that? Um, and, and that's kind of when I got into rodeo as well. I took the saber and I cut it down in length, and I did a boat called the lightsaber. So basically, cut the saber down to about nine feet, which at the time was impossibly short. Right. And but it had the same sort of volume distribution. It was kind of RPM-ish looking, sort of. 
you know. Um, I mean, but very basically, it was literally whacked a foot and a half half of each end of the saber, put a little bit more volume in the center of the bow to compensate for it, so it's a little bit more retentive. It still had a round hole on it. But I remember going to double trouble, and I could I could do retendos in double trouble where I could on the co I could surf it, and I could do not really a blunt, but somewhere between a blunt and a retendo type thing like that. And, and were these were these moves being done anywhere else, or were this just sort of exclusive things you were doing exclusively? Were what was how are the genesis of these tricks coming about? Because this is sort no, of the beginning of the explosion of rodeo. There were some guys on the west coast who were doing what I later learned was called a retendo. And another one that was called a wing over, where it was basically a Bob's hole. They were in a dancer and they would go to the corner of the hole and they would spin. And as they would spin in the corner of the hole, they would let the end of their boat catch and it would stand the boat up. But they were already sort of in mid turn in mid sort of spin. And it's not not a flat boat spin, but a normal edge of a hole spin. And it would lift the nose of the boat up to about 45 degrees, all a bit past that. And it would bring that around and stick them back in the hole facing upstream again. And they were calling that a, uh, a retendo. And then a wing over was when you, you basically got it wrong and it was kind of like what the entrance to a, uh, a McNasty is now. But this is in a 10-6 or an 11-foot boat kind of thing. But it was just like the, the entrance to a McNasty um, style move. So there were guys on the West Coast who were doing that, the Rob Lessers and, and some other guys out there. But I, would, I wasn't aware of it at the time. I didn't know that they, they'd already invented that wheel. Uh, so when but, when did you when did you leave perception? What 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 transpired? You just did you wanted to branch out on your own or what what happened? Uh, you know, I was an idiot. Um, I wanted to um, I wanted to design more radical, more advanced stuff. I'd done the blackouts and Bill didn't want to build it. Um, I was working on an asymmetric C1 design. The idea was that the boat was symmetrical end to end, but asymmetrical side to side. So if you were a lefty, you would face face one way. If you were a righty, you'd put the saddle in the other way, face the other way. And the boat was asymmetric, so it would compensate for the fact that you were only paddling on one side and it would go in a straighter line. Um, and it worked. You know, and I did a smaller boat based on that. Um, and uh, Davey, Hearn, and John Lugbell both tested it, and they said this thing worked, but they had their own things going, and and, and it, it, it sort of required a, a bit of a skill and adaptation. It was too close to the Olympics to doing any switching. <laughs> there were these different boats that I was working on, and I wanted to put these things into production, and Bill wanted nothing to do with it. So, I mean, did um, Bill not see the writing on the wall? I mean, because the sport at that point was about <laughs> completely. You know, I mean, maybe not towards asymmetric C1s, but certainly... I mean, that sounds like a million-dollar idea if I've ever heard of <laughs> But, I mean, the blackouts, which I wanted to build, which was yeah, right. a triple X, you know, Bill... His argument was, okay, so who's going to paddle that? And I said, well, me. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, but there, there's nobody like you. People aren't like you. Don't paddle boats. And I said, no, we're the future. Yeah. Your generation well, is dying the, out. We're the future. The, R, the RPM came around, it. and then, it, then that was it. I mean, it was that was, then the game was on, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that, that didn't really happen until the midnight or maybe 93 or something like that. But And this is 1991. So right. I approached uh, New Wave with this design, and I asked New Wave if they wanted to build it. And they said, yeah, sure. So I sent them the plug. Bill found out about it immediately and promptly fired me on the spot. Right. Understa understandably, you know, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> I was working for Perception, you know, and then I sold this design, which I designed at home in my backyard with my own money and my own materials. But nonetheless, 
it, you know, you can definitely see the conflict of interest from, from his perspective. Um, and, uh, so he fired me on the spot at that point. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go train full time for the Olympics. This was in early 1991. So, um, I put my head down and I did that and went to Barcelona. And then when I came back in 93, um, is when I really got into rodeo paddling, like as a, as, as a full-time profession. When did, when did, uh, Savage come about? Savage was 94. So in 19, 1992, when I was in Europe, I saw the prototype of the Prion Hurricane and uh, at Augsburg, and I got to paddle it there. This was during the Slalom World Cup in Augsburg, and I paddled the boat, um, and I was able to link up these ends in, in the Vask machine in, in, on the artificial course. I was just literally swapping ends, two, three ends at a time, which I'd started to do in the lightsaber, but not really. And this, the Hurricane was a really good boat. Uh, made some suggestions to them of what they could improve on this boat. Some of them they did, some of them they didn't. And they did some other things to it. And then when I came back to the States in the fall of 92, I was at Gaff, and the Prion rep had the first plastic hurricane in the U.S. there at Gaff that he was showing off. And I walked up to him and I said, it was with Scott Hornsby, and I said, hey, that's the boat I want to paddle next year. At, at the rodeo circuit and he said hang on a second and he went and made a phone call and he came back and goes okay Prion can offer you this much money a month this many air tickets around the world this the <laughs> year. But, but we can't, can't do more than this like will you accept I was like yeah I'll accept <laughs> that's like, how it, we still roll like that too <laughs> I couldn't believe it I was just I was hoping they were gonna give me pro form you know yeah, yeah well um, I mean paddlers need to take note that that actually happened back then you know? Yeah, yeah, it doesn't happen anymore, that's for sure. But, um, and, you know, I mean, it was probably like, you know, Sean Baker was was on somebody's payroll, um, on Eskimo's payroll. and But as far as I know, not really anybody else was being paid to paddle. They were always something else. They were a designer at the company or they were a sales rep or they had a job other than paddling for the company. And that's kind of when the arms race started, you know, was, was with the Prion Hurricane. Because then I was touring around the States on their bill, going to every event being held everywhere, and immediately Perception and Dagger realized, we got to get on this, because everywhere this guy goes, Prion sells 30 Hurricanes. Right. Um, and by the end of 93, you know, Perception and Dagger had teams. Actually, it was before the end of 93. It was probably mid-93, because by the time the Worlds came around, which were, what, in September 93, it had probably been two, three months that Dagger and Perception had full-time full -time team. I mean, it was, it was instantaneous. It was three months from no such thing as a pro team to every manufacturer having a pro team and having a boat like the Hurricane. You know, Perception came out with the Super Sport, um... Uh, Dagger was working on the transition. Piranha had the right, not the stunt bat, but the stunt master or master stunter or something like that. Um, <laughs> uh, something like that. I forget what it was. Um, and it was it was instantaneous. It was so quick. And you, all of a sudden, you had you went from nobody being paid to paddle to thirty people in the U.S. being paid to paddle, and the circus started. That was the beginning of the circus. You know. Yeah. So everybody at home is writing down the names of these boats to start looking for them on Craigslist. 
Yeah, it was um, the, was it the stunt bat? It was like the stunt, the master bat, master bat. No, maybe master bat. Anyway, um, so oh, Savage, uh, when when did you start Savage? So or did you start Savage? Like that was a weird collection of people. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, I started Savage. So <clears throat> by by the time the Worlds in '93 came along, I realized the limitations of the Hurricane. But these were all uh, displacement hell bolt boats, essentially. No, still, still displacement. I, I just, I hadn't gone back to planing hole in my head yet, um, you know, because like I said, the first planing hole boats that I did, they, they like, they paddled like a door. It was, you know, like I could get on a wave and I could do a 180 and sometimes a 360, and that was kind of cool. But for everything else, they sucked. They just, they didn't, it didn't paddle well. And this was, this wasn't because planing hole didn't work. It's because I wasn't doing it right. But I, we didn't know how to do it right yet. Um, so I did another boat called the Scorpion, which I designed. And the Scorpion, I really went radical with the volume change. I went to super, super skinny ends with a lot of volume in the middle of the boat. And I went to Prion with this. And, um, oh, my God, I'm popular guy today. I went to Prion with this, and I said, hey, you know, do you want to build this um, board? Oh, my God. Okay, one second. Hey, I'm in the middle of an interview. <laughs> um, sorry, guys, watch one second here. This is the first, this is the first one, the Hammer Factor. <laughs> where, is, where is he right now? Is he in Quebec? Quebec? Montreal. Can you guys even see me? No, nah, can't see nah. you. But we can hear you. Oh, okay. All right. Bon, ben, merci. Parfait. Je vais tester ça. Why? Okay. Excuse. All right. Merci. Um, so, um, yeah, the Scorpion, I mean, the Scorpion, in my mind, was the first modern plane boat. Yeah, it was the first boat that you would put, or was the first modern produced plane boat. I mean, Piranha yeah. had the stunt bats in about 89. But that didn't look like plane boats today. I mean, you could see a descendant from every plane boat today to the Scorpion. I mean, there is. Yeah. In my, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think. Mean, Lewis is giving me a doubtful look here, but. The concept I guess there. I don't see the Scorpion as that big of a departure from the Hurricane. It was a planing hull boat. Yeah. I mean, so it, no, 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 no. The Scorpion was I'm thinking, of the, no, the Scorpion I'm thinking, was of, I'm thinking of the Fury, I guess. Yeah. 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 You're thinking of the Fury. No, the okay. Scorpion, what the, if you looked at Never the Hurricane and you got to the end of the boat, it was about as. If you moved about a foot back from the tip of the nose, yep. the boat was pretty much the same height as it was in width. Not quite, but almost. It was still very cigar-shaped, um, even though the, dick, the deck dished down. The Scorpion was significantly uh, thinner in height than it was in width. You could put that boat on edge and slice it through the water. It was the first boat that I paddled that I could sit on the top of a foam pile of a hole and just whip ends. And it was, so it went from, you know, in a hurricane where you do three, four ends linked up, to uh, get in the Scorpion prototype, and within a week or two, so this wasn't an increase of skills. This wasn't that my skill set improved from year to year. This was within days of being in the Scorpion prototype, where I went from linking three or four ends in a row, reset, three or four ends, reset, to linking 15 ends in, in sequence with splits in the middle of it. So it was a massive departure in that sense. And I went to Prion with this boat, and they had no interest. I mean, their molds were so expensive. They said, look, it's it's... There's no point for us to do this. The Hurricane is still a good boat. And I said, yeah, now. But 
I guarantee you that by next year, Perception and Dagger, who basically copied the Hurricane, the transition was basically a Hurricane, and the Super Sport was a little bit different, but still. I said, by this time next year, they're going to have boats which are radically different from the Hurricane and radical improvements that we've got to stay on it. And they had no interest. And I was hanging out with a buddy of mine in, in Asheville at the time who was dating this this millionaireist, Celine Toms. And uh, uh, yeah. he, he paddled the prototype and thought it was awesome. And he went to his girlfriend and said, hey, we've got an opportunity here. We should build this thing. And so Celine told me, well, give me a business proposal. So I did a business proposal. She said, right, I'll fund this. And that's how we started Savage. And so after the, after the Scorpion came, the Fury, that's the boat I was thinking of. Yeah, so you think about the Fury. So yeah. the Scorpion wasn't even in production yet, and I was already working on the Fury. So the, the irony of the Scorpion is by the time the Scorpion came out in plastic, I already had no interest in paddling it because I had the first Fury prototype, um, and which we called the fucking Groovin' at the time. Um, and uh, it was insanely short at the time. It was the Fury because the Scorpion was 10 feet. The Fury, I think, was about 6'8 or 6'6. Six, six. Huh. This is the time when all boats were 10. So right. it was really short. And I eventually went up in length. It went up in length to about 7'6 or 7'4 or something like that eventually by the time it came out in plastic. Um, and it evolved from being sort of the, 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 the whippet and the whiplash were very much similar in shape to what the original Fury looked like. So they, so, you know, I was on tour. They saw the Fury and they decided they came up with the whippet and the whiplash and Dagger stuck with the round hole and they went with uh, the RPM. And I was working on the Fury, which, like I said, looked a little bit like a whippet or whiplash. And then by the time it went into production, which was a year later, it looked like that side cut, weird looking snowboard thing, which is eventually what came out. I was paddling for Dagger back then. I remember Joe Pulliam called me and he, he asked me what I thought about these short, these short boats with planing hulls. And uh, he mentioned the Fury or he mentioned a couple others. And I said, I think they're really dumb. I don't think they're going to, they're not great for instruction. They're really not going anywhere. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I think that list of. Uh, of claim chowder there. So I remember the, the next time I ran into you would have been in Ottawa in 97. It was in 97 where there was a bit of a controversy over, over yeah. flat spinning a wave. Does that, does that sound familiar? Well, that no, wasn't over flat spins, but yeah, that's 97 was the controversial year. Yeah. I mean, it's because at that point, I mean, in rodeo was hitting, really hitting mainstream. You saw, I mean, I think all of us, and that was the first year IR was in business. And I think all of us thought we were going to be ten to twenty million dollar companies within five years. I mean, that's how fast the sport yeah. was growing. You yeah, know, it was yeah. an exciting, exciting, heady time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the sport was changing in the sense that you were you went to, you showed up at the Ottawa and your boat was allowing you to do some tricks that no one else could do. What was it again? Um, so, well, we were we were doing all the weight stuff. We were spinning, blunting. Yeah. Um, you know, we were doing, uh, you know, all the vertical blunt stuff. We were doing all the stuff on the green waves. Um, we weren't doing any aerial stuff yet. That came at the end of that year. So it wasn't until 
a couple of months after the Ottawa Worlds that I started doing the first aerial blunts. Um, but so the, I mean, the Ottawa thing is, is there's a huge controversy around that whole thing that happened there. But essentially, um, what ha happened in the '96 Three Worlds is we had the hammer, the riot hammer at the 96 pre-worlds and most people still had a um, normal round style boat although dagger had the vertigo and perception had the whip it and the whiplash and wave sport had the kinetic so these were what i was referring to as semi-planing and so, so just to be just to be clear, at this point you had you had moved on from Savage. I think Savage kind of imploded financially, or something odd happened there, and then you moved on to Riot, right? And yeah, and uh, yeah. Burgess. I mean, it's a bit of a long story, but basically, the the owner of Savage, Celine, was you know a Hollywood prima donna, <clears throat> and she's a nice enough. She's look, I can't I can't bash her. This is a lady who who gave a kayak dirtbag bum like me a hundred grand to go start a kayaking company, so I can't complain. Right, but she. She had her own ideas of how the kayak company should be run, and those differed very dramatically and very radically from what I, what I thought, what I, how I felt the company should be run. And it just got to the point to where life was unpleasant. I didn't want to go to work, and she didn't want to go to work, and nobody wanted to see each other. And, um, you know, I got into a phone argument with her while I was in Canada meeting with the Savage distributor, and she fired me on the phone. And, and you know, I hung up the phone, and I looked at the guy, and I said, well, I was just fired from Savage. And he looked at me <laughs> You want to start a new kayak company? <laughs> and was that the start of Riot? I mean, was that the, how Riot got started? Riot, yeah. And that was so, I mean, That's how it started, you know? And so I think, um, you know what, I think I should point out also during that time, I mean, kayaking was moving from like a, a sport that was, you know, 10 years earlier was more like backpacking. I mean, it was just sort of a generic outdoor sport and you had a canoe club and you went out with your dad and maybe you saw Deliverance and you had a canoe. It's suddenly become an extreme sport, but the people running the bigger companies, your Pulliams and your and your and your Bill Masters, were old school guys, and they were they were moving along. They were they were moving along with this idea of the sport changing, but there was a younger crowd out there who thought that that kayaking should look a lot different than it did. And Savage mm -hmm. and Riot were both moving faster and far farther and harder along that image than anyone else. When when people talked about kayaking should look like a Volcom or it should look like, you know, a core surf brand, you know, Riot, Riot was doing that. You know what I mean? More, right. I remember the ads you guys were running back then, you know, were, you know, it was what, what a lot of us thought the sport should, the direction of sport should be going. I mean, it was that, 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 that nuance is kind of lost nowadays where the sports sort of engulfed by that, that idea. But back then this was a pretty radical thing, you know, I remember you ran yeah, an ad. I can't remember you know, what it was. I ran an ad for, for either Savage or Riot where I had a bunch of girls. I think they were more or less naked. They were spray-painted silver or something at the base of a waterfall. Um, yeah, so that was a Savage ad. It was one yeah. girl. This was the owner of Savage, or the other owner of Savage. This was Celine, who she had aspirations of being a Playboy model yeah. and things like that. <laughs> and so her idea was to do this ad and basically be naked and painted in, in body paint. Which I was, you know, totally fine with. I'm like, yeah, let's, you know, we had limited amounts of money to throw to advertising. So my theory of advertising was I'm going to run one ad this year in Paddler Magazine. That's all I can afford because this is before social media. So I'm going to run one ad and I want the entire world to know we exist. You did that. 
<laughs> Mission accomplished. I mean, I mean, there was nothing. I mean, you wanted to say it was hate mail. I mean, there was nothing like that in Palsworth's publications. Right. You know. And the ad they ran wasn't the one that we submitted. The one that they ran, they were they were too afraid to run the one that we. I'm sure you've seen the poster. You've seen that savage poster with the golden lady on it. Oh yeah. That's not. That's what the ad. But it's not the ad that ran. They wouldn't run that one. The one that we ran was, um, and they wouldn't run it as a as a spread, which is what we wanted to run. They ran it as a quarter page, kind of tucked away in the back of the magazine because they wanted to. They were afraid. Paddle Magazine was terrified. (laughs) And um, you had like one nipple that you could. (laughs) It was like her hair was sort of on it. You know, it wasn't nearly as risque as the one that I wanted to run, but it's all they, it's, it's all they would do. But it had the same effect. I mean, like I said, back then, if you wanted to send somebody hate mail, you couldn't just send them a Facebook message or send them an email. You had to pull out a piece of paper and then you had to write this letter, you had to put it in an envelope and find a stamp and lick it and go to the post office. I mean, you had to be motivated to send somebody hate mail, and I got bags of this shit. <laughs> <laughs> So back up at so back at ninety seven, you're in the riot you're in a riot boat, and you're you're doing a lot of wave moves, and the establishment isn't too into that idea, and you you had a bit of a protest there. Yeah, but what happened was was um, in now this is the beginning of internet and email communication, really. I mean, it, was, it started in the early nineties, but by by ninety six. Um, most people who had real jobs had access to at least internet and email at work, if not at home. And so Mark Scriver, who was the organizer of the Canada World Championships, he decided that he was going to take it to the next level in technology and all communication was going to be done via email. So one of the things that happened at the 96 Worlds is that we were going out in the hammer and we were doing all these wave spins. We weren't really blunting, but we were doing wave spins and Mark Cena was there and the necky rip and he was also doing these wave spin things and uh, um, somebody else was paddling for necky and he was kind of doing those things a little bit and um, <clears throat> and so we were doing all these things and and but there was no system to judge it at the 96 worlds because it didn't exist how do you judge something at you know, there's no such thing as trophy moves there's no such thing as points for wave moves so what um, what the organizers said was look okay we need to have Everybody put in their feedback and input of what the, the scoring system and the point values for each move should be. It's going to be in by December 31st, 1996, and then that's going to be set in stone for the 97 Worlds. And two people took the effort to send in suggestions, myself and somebody from Europe. Um, I think it was in the UK. And so... Essentially, the entire scoring system was based upon the suggestions from myself and this guy in the UK. We basically built the scoring system for the 97 Worlds. Mark sent out all these emails to everybody saying, okay, this is the scoring system. And not a single person from another company ever bothered to check their email once between December and and September 1997. I'm kind of the same way. So, so what happened was that we showed up two weeks before the World Championships at the Ottawa Rodeo, and the Ottawa Rodeo said, okay, well, we're going to use the world's scoring system to test it and, and see how it goes. And basically every other athlete was like, what the fuck is this? What? 
what are, what are these rules? Where did these come from? So Mark pulls out his little notes and he goes, here are the minutes from the meeting that we had in September of 96. This is what we agreed on. Only two people contributed to the rule set. You all had opportunity. I sent you all these emails. Nobody responded. It's your problem. They had the rules. You had the rules. And Carl Winter designed a better boat based on the rules. He said, huh, now that these rules for wave moves are really going to be scored, I'm going to go out and design a real boat that's designed to compete and win rodeos on a wave, not in a hole, which is what I did. And basically, it looked like it was going to be a complete sweep. And we had like five glides, composite glides there in the eddy. And nobody could touch it. Like with the rules, the way they were set up, it was going to be an absolute hammering where you were going to have one through fifth were going to be right boats and then everybody else was going to be a distant sixth. And understandably, everybody protested. This isn't fair. This is bullshit. How are we supposed to compete with this? This is not fair. We need to put the rules back to where they were in 1996. <laughs> so they had a meeting three days before the Worlds. And the, what they did was they were very clever. You got you to hand it to them. They were very clever. They didn't even bring up the rules that, had, that, had been, that were in place, the new scoring system. What they said was, there's some safety issues. Um, there's some things about whether we have grab loops on boats or not. We, um, we need to be able to change the rules in order to uh, be up to date with safety and things like this all the way up to the day before the World Championships so that we can make sure that we're you know, in line with things that are happening. And there was a vote on it, and everybody voted yes. And then immediately somebody stood up and raised their hand and said, like, I'd like to have a motion to put the rules back to where they were in 1996. And it was immediately voted yes, and that was it. Then it was, so the rules were set back to 1996. Meanwhile, I had a boat that was absolutely shit in the hole. It was terrible in the hole. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it was awesome on the way. So at this point, I'd been, I hadn't done a cartwheel in you know, six months. I'd been training wave stuff according to the rules. I designed a boat for wave moves according to the rules. And then now all of a sudden it was the opposite. Instead of it being riot first through fifth, I think riot was 25th through 30th or something. <laughs> and I just said, screw it. I'm not even going to. This is bullshit. And so said, how, how, long were you with, how long were you with riot? Like you started with riot somewhere around 95, 96, and then you were with them for a, a decade or so, right? Well, I mean, you'd say two decades, right? I mean, you think about how much noise you made. Yeah. Five, five years. Five years. Huh. Wow. That's it. So, Amazing, wow. huh? So, Corin, did you did you design the disco? Yeah. Yeah, see, in, in my eyes, that was... Uh, Playboat Evolution has kind of quit from that point to now. So, big hats off to that <laughs> one. And did you design anything after that at Riot? Playboat Yeah, Wars? yeah, yeah. Um, so, the, the disco actually... Um, we actually did the 007... Before we did the glide, the 007 was seven foot two. The disco was six six. The 007 had a planing hull, volume in the center, low volume ends. Um, it was the predecessor to the disco, and really, the disco wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the 007. Um, but it, the hull design on it wasn't as evolved as the glide hull. The glide hull was phenomenal, and so we decided that we wanted to do a 007 size shape with the glide volume distribution and the glide hull and the first disco we literally took a glide cut the ends off it and welded it up and went out and paddled that was quite literally the first disco um and uh you know it was the disco was revolutionary and, and i think it's it's a safe comment to say that all all modern 
freestyle boats are derivatives of the disco. I'll 100% oh, agree with that. There isn't, a, there isn't a freestyle boat on the market that's not a derivative of the disco. That being said, if you actually paddle the disco today, compared to the modern freestyle boats, you would think it is a piece of shit. Yeah. You know? So they have definitely evolved. The boats are phenomenally better in every way than the disco ever was. But they couldn't have happened, or maybe maybe they would have happened anyway. Anyway, who knows? But the bottom line is, is that they are all derivatives of that basic concept of... The, the volume ratio proportion of its width to its length to its volume displacement to the kind of a, a hull it has and where the kick rocker is in it and things like that. Lots of little things that happen. You've got edges on the holes or you don't have edges or you've got ribs and you don't have ribs and you've got dots or you don't. And, you know, you had piranha with blunt boxes and, and you know, and, and fins came in and went out and out of fashion and all kinds of things have happened. But they're basically all highly souped up, highly energized discos today um, so what year yeah, what year did you leave I, did the, I left in 2002 2002 and then what and then what happened i had uh, um i started imagine by then and um i decided that i was kind of tired of designing boats and i was going to make movies um so for two years from 2002 to 2004 ride was still paying me uh, a, a retainer to make um, paddling films, and I, that's when I did Endgame and uh, Legend of the Falls and a couple of other movies that I did, which you know, which were um, oh, we did uh, Searching for the G Spot, Searching for the Pro State, which were instructional videos uh, for Riot. Um, that was up to 2004. But uh, to go back to your other the question did i do any boats after the disco i mean we did the dominatrix we did the turbo we did the booster which were all highly successful boats um you know the dominatrix was part of the whole super slicey i can only sit in the boat for 15 minutes because my feet hurt because everybody wanted to go do flat water cartwheels in a surface boat um and uh, so we had a lot of good successful boats it actually sold more than the disco ever did really but by then a bigger company with bigger distribution but um, yeah, so from 2002 to 2004, I was making movies. <laughs> and tell us, tell us, Corinna, there was a point there when you got into the stand-up paddling scene and started the company. Eventually, I believe you sold it off. What was the – how did that all come about? Um, by mistake. Um, <laughs> I, uh, um, uh, I, you know, I surfed my whole life. And, but, you know, all the way through riots, I was, you know, focused on my career. I was competing. Uh, I showed up at the 1991 Worlds. So the Zambezi put in a bid for the 1991 Worlds. And it went to Graz in Austria, which is a pour-over ledge hole. And um, they didn't go to the Zambezi. And I was very excited about it going to the Zambezi, especially after it had been in Sort, which was, uh, uh, sorry, no, Sort was 1991, which was a ledge hole. Full Games was 1999, which was great. 2001, sorry, 2001 was Sort, which was a ledge hole. And Zambezi put in a bid for 2003, and it went to Graz instead. And in 2002, at the pre-Worlds, I was hanging out with Arne Schaeflein and Bernd Sommer, and uh, these are all the riot paddlers. And 
we showed up at pre-worlds and and literally like pulled up in our in our van walked onto the bridge and looked down to the hole and we saw like two or three people paddling into the hole just getting their asses handed to them as hole. <laughs> and i turned around to Arndt and i said you know i think i just retired from freestyle <laughs> and, and Art looked at me and he said, "Yup, okay, me too." And Brian said, okay, me too. And ben, Brown, and ben Brown was there, and Ben said, "Yup, okay, me too." And we all just walked back to the van, and we got in the van and drove away. We didn't even tell anybody, so we'd all registered, paid our entrance fees, and we just drove away. We're like, screw this. I mean, do you think you saw an inherent flaw of the sport at that point, where it just was, you know, because I think history has shown that that sport has never really lived up to his expectations early on. You know what I mean? For whatever yeah. reason. I mean, I mean, well, I mean, what the guys are doing now, like, do you see them on these big waves? And what they're doing now is so far ahead of anything that we ever dreamed that we were going to do. I mean... But it's not really in a competition setting. You know what no, I mean? No, it's not. It's not. So the competition setting was a disappointment. The problem that I had was that every single... Like, we talk about 1997, and that's the one that ever, that's, that, that is famous because of my protest. But every single Worlds, I had this fight where I had to, I show up at the World Championships and I had to paddle using skill sets that I hadn't used in a whole year because everybody was a year behind. I mean, Full James, which was in New Zealand, now, you know, Wasteboard had the full play, which was like the glide. And I can't remember what Perception and Dagger had. I think they had the medieval that Dagger and Perception had. Hmm. Mr. Clean or something. I forget what it was. Anyway, um, and I had the disco. So, you know, I'm a sitting full James. By this time, I'd spent the whole year at Lachines on Big Joe using the wave as a ramp, doing Pan Ams and air screws. We, hadn't, we weren't doing the Helix yet, but we were doing air screws. We were doing Pan Ams. We were doing these flip turns, which was the lead into the Helix. Um, we were looping, like consistently doing these loops. And I, you know, show up at, at the, the, the Worlds for, in 1999 at Full James, and they have another meeting, and they decide, no, no, you can't blunt in front of the wave. You've got to go all the way out onto the side of the wave to blunt on, on the diagonal. And I said, well, you just want to do that because you're in long, fast boats. You're in an eight-foot boat. Of course you want to go blunt on the diagonal. You can't blunt in front of the wave. But that's your problem, not my problem. I've evolved. I mean, your story's... Your story is kind of an archetype, though. I mean, what sport doesn't have a Maverick set? I mean, even like golf has people bringing out new clubs, and an establishment says no. Um, I mean, I also feel like there was almost there was like the the, the Jackson paradigm, which is sort of the establishment of, of rodeo, and they're still plugging away at it. And then there was sort of the Corn Addison paradigm, which was which which was a lot more disruptive. I mean, would you say that's true? Yeah, definitely. I was disruptive. I mean, you know, we live and learn as we get older, or at least we hope we learn. But, um, you know, so, you know, I'm at full James and I'm like, well, I don't think I can win the world in a disco. So I'm going to get back in my glide and I'm going to have to figure out how to paddle this thing again because I haven't been in it for a year. I've got to go remember how to do a blunt out in the diagonal. I've got to go remember how to cartwheel an eight foot boat because I've been cartwheeling a six and a half foot boat and I've been doing big blunts and Pan Ams in front of the waves and you know, um, if you're not going to score my moves in front of the hole, like if I come off the top and I come down the face and I hit the green at the bottom and I bounce into the air, basically butt bouncing, what butt bouncing is. If you're not going to score that, then I'm going to go get in a long boat. So that was, you know, in 1999. Then we go to sort in 2001. And 
by this point, I'd figured out how to loop on command. I was looping. I was doing space Godzilla's. I was doing front loops, back loops, space Godzilla's left, space Godzilla's right. I was doing them on the front of the boat and the back of the boat. And they have another meeting at the Worlds, and they decide, no, all those are the same move. You can only do one of them. <laughs> like, well, you're just saying that because you can't do those moves. You want to do a bunch of cartwheels and split wheels. And, you know, that's what Liquid Logic had, like the, the session, which, I mean, look at Barry Keenan would go out there in the session, and he would just do cartwheels. That I mean, that yeah. guy was a machine. I mean, what he did to that hole in that, in that boat, it was amazing. But, you know, so now I'm sitting there going, uh, well, hang on, what, I got to go pull out my dominatrix now and go and do a whole bunch of slicey end moves because you don't want to score my loops? What is this shit? And eventually I decided, fuck it. No, you know, and I decided to sort that my goal was to win the worlds without having the cartwheel variants on my score sheet. Like, I wasn't going to do one single cartwheel the whole event and try and win it based on not doing a cartwheel. Only loops and everything else like that. And I went out there and I did Space Godzilla's and loops and everything else, but they only scored one of them. So if I went in and did a front loop, I got that. I did a back loop, I got that. Then if I did a left Space Godzilla, didn't get it. Right Space Godzilla, don't get it. Left back Space Godzilla, don't get it. Same thing for the right. So I do eight moves and I got two. So I was also just frustrated. I was like, you know, I'm so sick of this. And when I showed up at Sort, I know in Sort, but at Graz, and it was just going to be more of the same in this poundy hall. I'm like, fuck this. I'm out of here. I'm tired of fighting. <laughs> and that's when you, and, and how did you transition to the stand-up paddling from there? So, so, so that, yeah. So, you know, I get back home after my tour of Europe, and I was like, right, well, I'm going surfing. And I grabbed my surfboard, and I paddle out into Lachines. I just swam out into Lachines with my surfboard. And I just started surfing, and it's, you know, I used to paddle six times a week at Lachines in my kayak, and within eight months, I was kayaking once a week, and I was out there, you know, the other five times on a surfboard. And by about 2006, I just was not even getting in a kayak anymore. I don't, the only time I'd ever get in a kayak, because I was working for Dragorossi, is I would design a new boat for him. I'd get in the boat, spend a week testing it, make the changes to it and then wouldn't get back in the boat again until the next time I'd have to design a kayak. I just didn't, I just stopped kayaking. And then I went to the beach with a buddy of mine and he was telling me about this new sport that he'd seen in Hawaii, stand up paddling. He said, basically it's like a longboard, but bigger. And I was like, bigger than a longboard. You gotta be joking. It sounds like the most retarded thing in the world. <laughs> oh no, it's really fun. I was like, no, it's not. I'm a shortboarder. I have no interest in, in a longboard, let alone a bigger longboard. Could you get a could you get a shortboard out to the wave at Lachine? Oh, all day long. Yeah, yeah, all day long. No problem. Huh. So we went down to the beach and it was like twenty seven degrees Fahrenheit was the air temperature. It was freezing cold and you know, we we're in five mil or seven mil wetsuits. This is in New Hampshire, and he had his stand up paddleboard. So I'm in the water, which is forty five degrees. He's standing in the air, which is twenty seven degrees. Within thirty minutes he was frozen. So he says, Hey, do you want to switch out for a little bit? I'm like, No. Oh, come on, I just need to warm up, like, I'll, you know, jump on my board, I'll jump on your board, I just need to sit in the water for a little while and warm up in 45 degree water, and then we can switch back out, I'm like, alright, fine. So I got on his board, and I paddled out, and I paddled onto a wave, and I surfed it in, and I'm paddling back out, he goes, what do you think? And I was like, nah, this thing's stupid. But in my mind, I was like, that was pretty awesome. <laughs> but I didn't want to tell him that. And, uh, after maybe 30 minutes, he's like, okay, I'm warm now. You know, we can switch back out. I'm like, no, no, it's cool, dude. Just warm up some more. You, you, you know, I'm fine, you know. 
and I was having a ball on this thing. But this thing was like 10 and a half feet or 11 feet long. It was like 30 inches wide. It was a tank. And when we were driving home, I was like, you know, I bet you could make a shortboard stand-up paddleboard. I bet you could make this thing under seven feet. You know, and he was like, no, 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 no. They tried to do some boards that were like under 10 feet and they didn't work. And, you know, they, they were no good. And I'm like, yeah, I think for the river, you could do it. You could make a seven foot stand up paddle board for a river, you know, make it 30 inches wide, make it short. So I shaped one up that week and it was awesome. <laughs> Took it to Hawaii with me like that fall. And people are like, what is that thing? Like, it's a stand up paddle board. No, 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 no. Stand up paddle boards are like 11 feet long. I'm like, no, no, it's a stand up paddle board, really. Did you have the river in the back of your mind when you when you made that shortboard? Yeah, yeah. When I first did it, because the longboard, I was like, hey, this was really fun at the beach, but you know, you're not gonna fit in a nine, you know, eleven foot board on the waves out of here. I was like, I want to go down to the Lachines on a on a on a stand up paddleboard and go surf that. So, the first one I did was uh, actually, well, I think it was like seven six the first one, and then I shaped up another one that was like six eleven, and that was my go to board for a long time here, but. You know, so who else? Who else was making boards that short at that time? Nobody that I knew of. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I'd never heard of a stand-up paddleboard under about nine and a half feet. Um, so this is like two thousand six, two thousand seven. Right. I'm sure somebody did. I'm sure. I'm not claiming to have invented. I'm sure somebody did. I just never yeah. heard of it, and I haven't seen one. Um, but when I went to Hawaii in in two thousand and eight. Um, I went out to Waimea on an 8.6. I surfed avalanches on my 8.6. Um, <laughs> I racket. can't imagine you were, you had, you got a good reception going out to Waimea on a stand-up paddleboard. <laughs> I'm picturing some, some angry locals. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, no, they, stand-up paddleboarding was definitely not cool in 08. But definitely, luckily, I was friends with Garrett McNamara. And so, you know, I would go out there with him and people would start giving me a lip and Garrett would just say, hey, shut up, leave him alone. He's, he's cool. He's, you know, he's, he's got this. Um, and most of the time people would, they didn't like it, but they would cut me some slack. Um, right. And then I went to Makaha and this was in 09. I went to Makaha in really big day and went out there and most of the guys were only surfing the pocket on the far right. And there was one local dude on a, on a, on a gun. Um, and then I was on my stand-up paddleboard, and we were taking off all the way deep, deep inside on this thing, and we were out there for a couple of hours. And, uh, you know, the guy gave me props, you know, when I when I came in, and he was like, dude, that was awesome. Like, that's how stand-up paddling should be. And the next day when I went out, and I think it was at Himalayas, I think, or maybe it was Rocky Point. But anyway, on the North Shore, uh, we went out to the North Shore, and this guy came up to me, and he goes, hey, were you the guy at Makaha yesterday? Uh, yeah, yeah, I was there at Makaha. He goes, you know, and he turned around to the other guys a lot. And he goes, he's cool. Leave him alone. He's, the guy's cool. He should have seen him yesterday at Makaha. And then I, from then on, I kind of got a break. Like, I got left alone. Huh. Um, so you started making boards then? Yeah, well, I've been making boards since 2006. Surfboards. And then we started making stand-up boards in, in uh, 08. 2008, we started making those. And then by 09, we developed this eco-technology where we were using... Under what, what was your brand? Imagine. Right. Just to refresh everyone's mind out there. Yeah, imagine. So by we developed this technology. I was using recycled cores. I was using pine sap resin and bamboo fiber. So no fiberglass. 
not using uh, regular epoxies and recycled cores, and we reduced the carbon footprint by a cubic meter um, on on these boards. And we won uh, we won two awards. We won an award for ISPO, the uh, best new sporting industry product. So all categories of the entire sporting industry, we won the overall first prize for this eco surfboard that you could split into two pieces for travel because airlines now weren't taking boards anymore. Right. So we developed a technology to split it into pieces that you could then assemble within you know a minute when you got to your destination, the whole thing ecological. Um, and then this investment group in California approached me and asked if I'd be interested in selling them the company. And they gave me $2 million for it. Killed. How was that? <laughs> <laughs> you should have been like, I'm an artist. Fuck you. So then what? I mean, now you're on – now you now we have uh, Soul, Soul Waterman. Soul, yeah. yeah, and yeah. Something, something super uh, – go ahead, Corn. I'm sorry to cut you No, 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 no. Go ahead. So there's something super interesting that you got going on with the Soul Waterman is the send in your CAD design and build – and basically, you'll build that boat. How 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 does that work? Well, no, it's not. I mean, you could send in your CAD design, but it's no. It's I do the CAD design for them. So basically, um, this is standard in surfing. This is the normal thing. If you, unless you're just learning to surf, or you're on a vacation somewhere and you snap your board and you got to have another board right now, you march into a surf shop and you pick a board up off the shelf. But in surfing, anybody worth their salt has a board made for them. You go in, you see your shaper, and you say to your shaper, hey, you know, I want to get a new 6'2 uh, short board for a steep beach break. Um, I like quads, so I definitely want you know, I want a quad set up. I want it to be really loose, but I like getting deep in the pockets. Uh, where I, The waves where I surf are really hollow. I'm a really good surfer, but I'm front foot heavy. I tend to surf a lot on the front foot rather than the back foot. Um and uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm uh, five foot uh, ten and 170 pounds, and I've been surfing for 30 years. I'm an expert. And the guy will make a board for you. And this board is designed to do all the little things that you just mouthed off on. This is normal in surfing. It's unheard of in kayaking. And the reason why it's unheard of in kayaking is there's a very big difference. In a surfboard, you shape up the blank and you glass it and you sand it and off you go. Kayaking, you got to make a mold. Even if it's a fiberglass boat, you still got to make a mold. You got to make a mold to make this boat. And so, and generally, kayaks have been hand shaped, which this is a big, big thing to hand shape a kayak. You know, it's a lot of work. Oh, yeah. So, with CAD, what's come along is that, you know, I will basically design this kayak. We CNC a temporary mold. We laminate this boat inside the temporary mold. <clears throat> we break the mold off of the boat. And then we do the finishing work on the boat afterwards and give it to the customer. And so what we've, established, what we've managed to do is basically bring to kayaking the exact same thing as surfing does, where we uh, are offering people the ability to come to me and say, hey, you know, um, I hang out at Garbaretta on the Ottawa all the time. Um, I re- oh, you there, Corin? Oh, man, just getting to the part I wanted to hear. <laughs> I know, right? Gordon, yeah. are you there? Oh, I'm going to try him again. Weird. I've got a really long left leg and a short right leg. <laughs> and um, 
you know, I want to, I want, I need you to make a boat that'll make my kayaking experience more fun and we can do it. And it's never been heard of. Or Charlie Woolbridge, hey, you know, his favorite boat is the Han, which is from 1972. And he's bought a whole bunch of boats since then and he hasn't liked them. Can you make me a modern Han? Sure, dude, no problem. He doesn't want a modern Han. He wants the old Han. <laughs> well, he wants the old Han with, with a little bit of with a little bit of modernization, but not too much. <laughs> so how many? Of he these... wants to take out some rocker out of that boat. Do <laughs> some camber. Right. So how many of these custom boats are out there right now, Corin? Well, the first production run. So we only announced it um, in the beginning of December. The first production run started at the end of December. It's about a three-month process to make these boats. So the first dozen are going to be leaving China probably next week. And it's a month on the water for them to get here. So it'll be about a month's time that these are going to end up uh, in people's hands. The second order, which we start production on Monday, we've got three dozen, which are going into production. So I got to ask, I got to ask, how are these boats so cheap? Questions abound. (laughs) A boat, yeah, a boat. Um, how do we do it so cheap? And, and, and yeah, so cheap, I mean, it's, it's it seems 16, like sixteen hundred bucks on the website, correct? Yeah, start, yeah. It's start, sort of starting at right. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, it's Chinese labor with Chinese overhead, so that makes a big difference. You couldn't do it here for that. The other thing is that the material that we uh, use to buy the mold. You can't get in the U.S. You can't make it in the U.S. because there's some nastiness in there which don't fall in line with EPA standards. Although that looks like it's going out the door, so maybe next year we could do it. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting her EPA here real soon. Yeah, that's um, so, it's a problem at this point. Yeah, you know, we would have to import the material to make these temporary molds, um, which is cost prohibitive. Uh, and so we can, so we're not making a lot of money on it. You know, and what's the, what's, what's your cost on the, on one of these $1,600 boats? Oh, the $1,600. Well, I don't know if I really want to divulge that, but, um, it's, like I'm, making 1500. Less than, <laughs> I'm making less than half the margin than I would on a plastic boat. Right. And so what's, I see looking at the website as well, that you're making them seamless. What's, uh, talk to me about the process for that. Are you doing it with a bladder or? Yeah, we use, yeah, we're using a bladder. Shapes. It's infusion, and we use a bladder to to mold it. Yeah. And so, do you have to make a a bladder to go along with the with the shape, or? <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I can't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> so, what happens if I get my boat? So, I mean, with surfing, right? Think about surfing in the in the pair in, in in the example you're using is that. You have an endless amount of shapers to pick from. Each shaper kind of has a reputation. You can go to a shaper that's known to make more of a river running boat or a shaper that's made more of a playboat. It seems to me if I get a boat from Corn, I'm going to get some variation of a riot boat. You know, because that's, I mean, that's, that's the kind of designer you are. I know, I know what kind of boats you make. Um, so, I mean, that's the first thing. You know, you don't, and the, the other thing would be is I get the boat, I don't like it. I'm like, this honestly sucks. What's, what do you do at that point? Do you, I mean, Okay, so the, the first, the answer to your first question is one of the advantages that, that uh, happened when I sold my surf company to this company in California is I moved down there and in a period of five years designed probably close to a thousand surfboards that I made. 
The ability to learn to design what the customer wants rather than what you like is something uh, is a, is a a skill that I developed over the last five years. In in other words, I'd have some, somebody come to me and say, "Hey, you know, I'd like a a a, a retro uh, Simmons. A Simmons is a is a board from the 1960s. I'd like something like a, a Simmons with uh, possibly a, a little bit more modern rail in it. But but basically, I'm looking for a Simmons. Now, I would never surf that board in my life. I would I would have no urge to ever surf a board like that. But I got really good at giving the customer what he wanted. Um, and I think one time, like quite literally one time, the customer said, yeah, it's okay. I don't love it. It's not bad, but I don't love it, you know, which you're going to get. Um, so some people are going to love boards more than, than, than others. They're going to be super stoked or just stoked or incredibly stoked. Um, and that's, that's kind of the downside of custom, which is you can't test it. You can't say to the guy, okay, we'll make one. I'll test it. And if I like it, then you can make me mine. It doesn't work. That can way. I, can I do something like say, you know, I really like the tuna and maybe wink and say like a lot <laughs> wink and get both. That's, <laughs> that's strikingly like a, like a 28 pound tuna. <laughs> Yeah, so I just did a boat for a guy. Well, no, you're absolutely, no, absolutely. So I just did a boat for a guy who came to me and he said, I love the Carman Limited. Love yeah. the Carman Limited. It's my favorite boat. Right. But it's 60 pounds. I want a 30-pound or 35-pound Carman Limited. Can you do it? And I said, of course I can do it. Yeah. He goes, okay, perfect. And I said, now, can you honestly tell me that there isn't one single thing about the karma that you don't like or that you would change. This is a boat that's designed for winning the green race. Where are you paddling this thing? Oh, I paddle on the Potomac. You know, I run big water stuff. And then I'll go down to Odeck and I'll surf the waves down at Odeck. I'm like, okay, you're surfing in your Karma Unlimited. Yeah. Do you love surfing the Karma Unlimited? Well, no, I kind of prefer the Daga Outburst. Okay, so right there we can do something to that boat to make it better for what you're doing on it. I understand that Karma Unlimited is where you want to start. But unless you're like, nope, can't think of a single flaw with this entire design, which I've never heard of, ever. I know, like the tuna, except for like the water bottle holder, the shock cord could be a little bit tighter. <laughs> <laughs> no, if it was exactly like, you know, if it was exactly like the tuna, yeah. I would probably have to say to you, look, you're going to have to call up the guys and ask them if they mind, because I'm not going right. to knock them off. Right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. But marine law is a 10% change in the boat's entirety is considered a new design. Now, 10%, dude, that's nothing. Like, that's plagiarism right there. You can do 11% and you plagiarize somebody else's boat for sure. It sort of depends how you're measuring it, though, right? I mean, on another level, it's like, is there a 10% difference between any one creek kayak and another creek and kayak? Well, almost because I mean, well, no, they, I mean, you know what? There's almost ten percent difference between a yellow tuna and a blue tuna. <laughs> no, I'm serious. It's kind of a hard thing to quantify, right? Like, yeah. So you know, so you could get around the legality of it very, very easily. You know, I mean, that wouldn't be the problem. But I, you know, if it's like if somebody said, "No, no, I want exactly that," I'd be like, "Okay, well, you need you need to go call Kenny and have a conversation with Kenny, and I need this in writing that he doesn't mind." But um, in the case with the comma, you know, once we were done with our discussion, we realized, you know what? The boat's got too much volume in the end for what he's doing, and he's not creaking. He's not running gorilla. 
Um, he needs it to be a little bit better to surf. So we wanted to have a little bit less pregnant in the rocker and the tail of the boat. We wanted to have a little bit squarer to the back of the boat. Now, this isn't a boat that I would paddle personally, no interest. But, um, you know, we worked on this design until we got him, which we fixed all the things about the Karma, which weren't perfect. Do you start? His- do you do you start by knocking off the karma? I mean, do you somehow digitize the karma and then modify it? Is that the starting no, point? Oh no, no, I don't need to do that. I'll just go online. I'll look. Um, so I was lucky. I have a friend who's got an unlimited. So I just went over to the house and looked at it. So I had an idea of what the hull shape looks like, and I grab a top and a side view of the thing, so I can start off with here's a basic outline. Here's a basic rocker. Okay, there's and then here's and I'll do a hull that's basically like it. Okay, this is close enough. All right, this is what we're looking at now. Now. You know, we want to take some of the pregnancy out of the rocker and the tail. We want to square off the tail a little bit. We want to take some of the volume out of both ends. We want to increase the volume in the cockpit just a little bit. We wanted to shorten it up by three inches, you know. Um, so these are basically the steps that we went through. And by the time you're all said and done, it doesn't look anything like the comma. It's not going to paddle anything like the comma, but it's going to do for him what he liked about the comma. So I got to jump back to the manufacturing questions a little bit. I, uh, what, what kind of resin are you building these things with? Epoxy. Epoxy. Yeah. And what, uh, what's like, what's your standard layout? We got a strong and a light. So the strong layout would be a combination of Kevlar's carbons and PVC foams. So PVC foam is really nice because it actually, it's, it's not quite as strong as Kevlar, but it's, it's pretty strong. And so you have the advantage of, of ending up with a foam core that's kind of like Corsell or Airx or something like that. But unlike Corsell and Airx, which all those things do, all it does is, is separate your layers so that you get rigidity. The PVC on top of doing that also gives you impact. Um, so it'll be a combination of you know uh, mostly Kevlar's and PVC with some carbon. And your light layup, we're going to have more carbon, much less Kevlar, and your PVC and you basically, you've reduced the number of layers. You've increased the number of stiffness layers and reduced the number of impact layers. In the and boat. so, have you produced any boats yet with these with this layup? Like, do any of these exist yet? Yeah, yeah. We did one light and one strong for me to test, um, which I went over there and, and paddled them in China. So you know, I didn't bring them over here. I went over there, paddled them, tested them. This is when we were dealing with the factory. There were all kinds of problems with the first boats that we made. I mean. You know, like teething problems from uh, that were you know are normal uh, that we had to sort out, and uh, so that this next this first batch is coming in now. That's the first fully production batch done with these layups. We and so how many? One. How many? Uh, how many? Like if I got the strong layup in a creek boat, how many green runs do you think that's good for, or how many little white runs do you think that's good for? Or do you think I it's just I don't know yet. I really don't because I haven't put a strong layup through an environment like the green yet. We have a couple of boats coming that that is the intense. We've got some boats coming, which are basically for me and some of our team paddlers that are the ideas that they're going to go out and test these things on something like the green. So the two places that we've been telling people to hold off on ordering from us because we don't know if we can deliver what they want is a full-on creek boat where you're going to beat the living tar out of this thing. We know we can do the shapes, but we just don't know what kind of a beating they can take. And a slalom boat where we, we can't yet get the weights down. You know, the process is pretty cool, but it is more limiting. 
um, in some in some ways. And so, like a slalom boat that you want, you know, which is a three uh, three and a half meter boat, which is coming out at nine kilos. You know, we can't make it under eleven kilos. Right. Cool. You know, not yet. Not yet. We're working on it, but we're not there yet. So. Um, you know, so people like, because slalom paddles, of course, there's a place where people are like, hey, you know, I love this boat from this company, but I need, for my paddling style, this or that change. And we could do it, but we just can't make it nine kilos. Cool. Right. Right on. Let's go. Cool. Well, Corbin, we are, uh, we're, we're about to run out of time. What, uh, what, what's next for you? What do you see on the, what do you, what do you see on the horizon? You're definitely, uh, not slowing down. That's for sure. Well, you know, new challenges. You know, I've, I've got a, a three-year-old son now. And um, all of a sudden, I understand EJ a little bit better and, and how some of his focus changed. And, you know, he was doing the fun one and, and uh, the little mini hero, whatever it's called, and, and you know, some other boats like that um, that he did. And, and um, it, you, you realize how focused you become on trying to do cool stuff with your kid as opposed to just doing cool stuff. So, you know, I've developed the design, the, the Terrible 2, which is this uh, two-person kayak, but it's a two-person kayak where the front person is a toddler. I mean, it's we're talking about three- to six-year-olds type thing, you know. Um, and all the challenges of making it a safe and fun experience for somebody like that. It's very different to take a six-year-old out than it is to take a 12-year-old out. Oh, yeah. You know, a, a six-year-old gets a, a face full of water from a wave, and you might be done forever. <laughs> Um, so these are things that you have to think about and, you know, I've, I've, uh, um, I built him a motorcycle, uh, a, a little, uh, um, street bike that uh, he's been riding and he, we're taking him skiing and snowboarding. And so, you know, the, the challenge for me is, is, you know, to introduce my son to all these things that I do so that, um, you know, I basically have a forced friend and this is a guy that has to be my mate and has to go do all the stuff that I want to do because I'm going. Right, <laughs> you know, um, but it's a good, it's a design challenge, you know. I did, I did a single, a single kayak for uh, basically designed it for my son, but I put him in a fun one. I put him in some other boats, and you know, I realized some stuff. You know, when you're three years old, he wants to get in the boat, he wants to paddle around the pool, but he can't paddle straight. And so we put a, a drop-down skeg, the same skeg that we developed for our whitewater sups. We put this drop-down skeg in the uh, in the little the little uh, boat the little kayak for him and you drop the skeg down and for him the skeg is so big that the boat if he's doing any kind of a forward stroke at all the boat goes in a straight line oh. very cool which is going to be encouraging for a three-year-old he's going to want to go because it's, it's about the step you know? and so these are the things to me which seems to be the challenge it's uh that I'm excited about is, is spending time with my son doing these things and then developing these products that go hand in hand with this. And it, it just turns out that I'm of the age now that most of the people that I was competing with and against when I was in my twenties and early thirties now also have young children, my age. I mean, we're talking about, you know, Simon Westcott and cheesy and you know, all these people who worked at all these different manufacturers all over the, you know, the world. And they work at Palm or Piranha or Daga or, or prion or wherever it is and um you know these guys will come to me and said hey you know i want to get a terrible two from you for, for use with my kid and i'm like sure dude no problem you know um and that's always fun whereas these guys that have known for 30 years you know are are in the same at the same place that i am 
the same time. It's pretty cool. Well, where can uh, where can our viewers um, where can they find out some more information about your uh, your, your kayaks? Soulwaterman.com. That's one word. Soulwaterman. Uh, that's the best place to start. And otherwise, on Facebook, it's impossible to miss me. I'm everywhere all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Corn, I certainly appreciate it. That was a very interesting interview. And, uh, man, great to have you on the show, man. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Corn. No Thank problem, you. guys. It was a pleasure talking to you guys. And uh, if you need anything, uh, just give me a shout. <laughs>